Welcome to Seeking Jesus, a podcast for Latter-day Saints focused on learning all we can about Jesus Christ. This was originally designed as a video course. To see the visuals for this episode, please visit johnhiltonii.com slash seekingjesus. Over the years, I've loved speaking at, especially for youth or FSY conferences. I found that there are two topics that FSY participants especially love to learn about, dating and the second coming. The bad news is we're not going to be talking about dating today, but the good news is we are talking about the second coming. I remember one teacher sharing about a second coming lesson that went horribly wrong. He wanted to shock his students, so he brought hundreds of plastic flies and put them all around the classroom. Then he hung giant styrofoam balls to represent the hail that is prophesied to occur prior to the second coming. He also got a bunch of maggots to pass around the classroom and made posters with scary verses about the second coming. He thought this would be a fun way to approach the lesson, but he noticed that some of his students left feeling frightened about the second coming. Reflecting on this class, he realized that although he was trying to have fun with his students, he had scared them. Most importantly, he realized he had missed an opportunity to help them get excited about the Savior's return. The next time he taught a lesson about the second coming, he taught it differently. It's true, though, there are some scary things about the Savior's second coming. In Doctrine and Covenants, the Savior says, The love of men shall wax cold, and iniquity shall abound. There shall be people standing in that generation that shall not pass until they shall see an overflowing scourge, for a desolating sickness shall cover the land. Among the wicked, men shall lift up their voices and curse God and die. And there shall be earthquakes also in diverse places and many desolations. Yet men will harden their hearts against me, and they will take up the sword one against another, and they will kill one another. That definitely sounds frightening. Shortly before his death, Jesus Christ told his disciples about the signs of a second coming. Just like some of us, his disciples were concerned about what these signs would mean. I find significance in the Savior's response to them. He said, Be not troubled. For when all these things shall come to pass, ye may know that the promises which have been made unto you shall be fulfilled. What a powerful message from Christ. Don't be afraid. The promises that have been made to us will be fulfilled. In a recent face-to-face event, Elder Ronald A. Rasband was asked a question something like this from a young adult. It seems like we live in such troubled times. Is there enough time for me to live a normal life, to get married, to have children? Maybe this class does relate to dating after all. Let's listen to his response. I would say that people have been asking these questions for decades and decades of time. Believe it or not, I had my kind of young adult years in the 60s. And that was a pretty trial-filled era also. And I think of my father who grew up with two world wars and how difficult it was for them. And during my years as a 70, one of my general authority mentors and leaders was President Boyd K. Packer. I love a quote that President Packer made about this subject that I think applies to every one of you. Here's what he said, quote, Sometimes you might be tempted to think, as I did from time to time in my youth, the way things are going, the world's going to be over with. The end of the world is going to come before I get to go where I should be. Not so, said President Packer. You can look forward to doing it right, getting married, having a family, seeing your children and grandchildren, maybe even 
great-grandchildren. Back in the 60s, when I was seeing the commotion in the world and in our country of the United States, I didn't quite understand then that today, Sister Rasband and I would be seeing our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. So can you. The promises that are made to you in the temple, in baptism, at the sacrament table, will be fulfilled. Be not troubled. Whatever else happens in our second coming discussion today, I hope you don't finish this video with a feeling of fear about the second coming. Remember the Savior's words, be not troubled. The promises which have been made unto you shall be fulfilled. Let's talk for a moment about what life will be like before the second coming. Imagine the second coming happens during your lifetime. I'm not saying it will, but just imagine it does. Picture yourself two weeks before the second coming. What will you be doing? Will you be holed up in a bunker somewhere eating the last of your year's supply of wheat? Or will you be attending a wedding reception? What will life be like? I'm not 100% sure what life will be like the two weeks before Christ's second coming, but we have a few clues. In the Joseph Smith translation of Matthew 24, Jesus taught, But as it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be also at the coming of the Son of Man. For until that day that Noah entered into the ark, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. I think this is a valuable principle. Who knows, maybe we will all be in bunkers eating our food storage. But it seems like normal life will be continuing. Eating, drinking, marrying. These activities continued until the day of the flood, and it will be the same way with the second coming. Another principle is that the second coming will catch many people off guard. Paul, in one of the earliest New Testament writings about the second coming, said, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Usually, thieves come when you're not expecting them. In addition, 2 Peter chapter 3 suggests that, at least from some people's perspective, it will seem like Christ is delaying his coming. There shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Or in other words, why hasn't Jesus Christ come yet? We don't know exactly what life will be like before the second coming, but I think these three ideas, that normal life will continue, it's going to be a surprise like a thief in the night, and it may take longer than we would hope, are principles that we can keep in mind. Because we don't know exactly what will be happening prior to the second coming, it's important for us to not be deceived. If I were to tell you that I knew when the second coming would be, would you believe me? Of course not. But people have been making and believing predictions about Christ's second coming for a long time. Hippolytus of Rome predicted that the second coming would be in the year 500 AD. That turned out to be incorrect. Pope Sylvester II predicted 1000 AD, which seems like a good round number, but it was also wrong. Then some scholars said, well, if it's not a thousand years from the birth of Christ, it must be a thousand years from the death of Christ, and predicted Christ's second coming to be 1033. That also didn't happen. More recently, William Miller, a Christian minister, predicted Christ would return between 1843 and 1844. This also didn't come to pass. Even in recent memory, a popular Christian radio speaker put up billboards stating that the second coming would be May 21st, 2011. The Bible guarantees it. That also was incorrect. All these predictions seem to forget that Jesus said, Of that day and hour, no one knoweth. No, not the angels of God in heaven, but my Father only. Elder M. Russell Ballard taught, 
So can we use this scientific data to extrapolate that the second coming is likely to occur during the next few years or the next decade or the next century? Not really. I am called as one of the apostles to be a special witness of Christ in these exciting, trying times, and I do not know when he's going to come again. As far as I know, none of my brethren in the Council of the Twelve or even the First Presidency knows, and I would humbly suggest to you, my young brothers and sisters, that if we do not know, then nobody knows no matter how compelling their arguments or how reasonable their calculations. I believe when the Lord says, no man knows, it really means that no man knows. You should be extremely wary of anyone who claims to be an exception to divine decree. Ultimately, I don't think very many of us would fall for a specific predicted date for the second coming. That's too obvious. But perhaps there are more subtle ways we can be deceived. Jesus said, There shall also arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that, if possible, they shall deceive the very elect, who are elect according to the covenant. Note the phrase regarding people who are elect according to the covenant. That could be you and me. Who are the false Christs and false prophets who will try to deceive the elect? Deception could come from individuals who claim to have a special message from God. In recent history, some individuals claiming to be prophets have led groups of people astray, leading to death and destruction. Maybe that's part of what is meant by false Christ. But consider this analogy. Which is more dangerous, a deer or a shark? While the shark looks scary, you're 300 times more likely to be killed by a deer crashing into your car than a shark. We can see this as an analogy with false Christ prior to the second coming. Yes, there will be some obvious false prophets. However, even more dangerous might be subtle false Christ. A false messiah could be false philosophies. It could also be anything we look at and say, this promises me peace, hope, and deliverance. This could be something like power or money or sex. Now, that might sound a little bit over the top, but consider some scenarios. A man started working until 7.30 p.m. almost every night, making it so he couldn't put his young children to bed or help out with the teacher's quorum activities anymore. He told himself things would be normal in the fall. Then he started to fudge his sales numbers to impress his boss. Over time, he got his ultimate sense of identity from his work life. That could be a false messiah. Or a woman in her 30s scrolls through Instagram. She feels left out because her friends have more opportunities. One friend was just in Maui. Another friend's husband surprised her with tickets to a new musical. And it seems like everyone goes out to eat way more than she does. She thought to herself, maybe if my husband and I had better jobs, we could afford this kind of stuff. That could be a false messiah. I remember talking with a woman who had recently started college. She missed home. She missed her mother's lasagna. And she missed her family, especially her little sister and her toothless grin. There was a hole in her heart, and she thought she'd fill it with a dating app. Soon she had a boyfriend, and they started spending a lot of time together. Too much time alone and too many late nights led them to do things she knew were wrong. At first, it felt like the hole in my heart was getting filled up, she told me. But then the hole kept getting bigger. That could be a false messiah. In one way or another, Satan is going to try to deceive even the very elect as the second coming approaches. How can you and I avoid being deceived? Jesus taught, Whoso treasureth up my word shall not be deceived. 
As the second coming approaches, one of the most important things we can do is to treasure up the Savior's words. That's part of my overarching hope for this course, that it not only has helped you focus on Jesus, but also that it has given you some tools and strategies to, on an ongoing basis, continue your efforts to treasure up the words of Jesus Christ. What are you and I doing to treasure up the Savior's words? Are there other things we should be doing? President Russell M. Nelson taught, In like manner, it is now time that we each implement extraordinary measures, perhaps measures we have never taken before, to strengthen our personal, spiritual foundations. Unprecedented times call for unprecedented measures. These are the latter days. If you and I are to withstand the forthcoming perils and pressures, it is imperative that we each have a firm spiritual foundation built upon the rock of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Thinking about this statement from President Nelson reminded me of the walking up the down escalator analogy we discussed back in our class on parables. As the challenges in the world increase, it's as though the speed of the escalator is accelerating. So if I keep doing what I've always done, I'm going to move backwards. As we think about Christ's invitation to treasure up his words in order to not be deceived, let's connect that with President Nelson's invitation to make unprecedented efforts to build our spiritual foundation on Jesus Christ. What could you and I do to more deeply treasure up the Savior's words? One possibility to consider is a recent invitation Elder Neil L. Anderson gave to missionaries. He encouraged them to select some of their favorite teachings from Jesus Christ and memorize them. He said, I think it is very helpful if you begin today to learn a few of the teachings of Jesus Christ and have them in your memory. Choose your own passages to memorize. Find some things that Jesus has said and let them penetrate who you are. You won't only remember them during your mission, but you will have them for all your life. Let's shift now to some parables of preparation that Jesus gave as part of his discourse on the second coming. As you know, Matthew 24 and 25 are connected. In Matthew 24, verse 3, Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, and his disciples approached him and said, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Then Jesus gives a discourse that continues all the way until chapter 26, verse 1, where it says, He ended his sayings. So Matthew 24 and 25 are one continuous discourse about the Savior's second coming and how to prepare for it. Let's briefly look at the three parables in Matthew 25. First is the parable of the ten virgins. There was a wedding feast and ten women were waiting for the marriage procession to begin. They had all been invited to the party. They all had lamps. They all had some oil. But unfortunately, there was a delay and five of the women were unprepared. They weren't ready for the unexpected in their lives. Think about how that might apply in our lives. Are you and I prepared for the delays that we will experience? Are we prepared for when something unexpected happens? Do we have enough oil in our reserves to handle the challenges that we don't anticipate, but surely will come? As a young man, when I heard about the 10 virgins, sometimes I thought, I don't see why the five wise virgins are that great. I'm a kid and even I know you're supposed to share. But of course, this is a parable. And within the parable, sharing wasn't a viable option. Elder David A. Bednar taught, Were the five wise virgins selfish and unwilling to share? Or were they indicating correctly that the oil of conversion 
cannot be borrowed. Can the spiritual strength that results from consistent obedience to the commandments be given to another person? Can the knowledge obtained through diligent study and pondering of the scriptures be conveyed to one who is in need? Or can the peace the gospel brings to a faithful Latter-day Saint be transferred to an individual experiencing adversity or great challenge? The answer to each of these questions is no. As the wise virgins emphasize properly, each of us must buy for ourselves. These inspired women were not describing a business transaction. Rather, they were emphasizing our individual responsibility to keep our lamp of testimony burning and to obtain an ample supply of the oil of conversion. This precious oil is acquired one drop at a time, line upon line and precept upon precept. No shortcut is available. No last-minute flurry of preparation is possible. How can you and I be counted among the wise virgins? In the Doctrine and Covenants, Jesus Christ gives some additional insight on this parable. As he discusses the second coming, he says, When I shall come in my glory, shall the parable be fulfilled which I spoke concerning the ten virgins. For they that are wise and have received the truth, and have taken the Holy Spirit for their guide, and have not been deceived, shall abide the day. Those are some ways we can fill our lamps with oil. We can receive truth, take the Holy Spirit for our guide, and not be deceived. The second parable in Matthew 25 is known as the parable of the talents. Although today we think of talents as our skills and abilities, at that time a talent was a monetary unit. There were three servants, and each servant received a different number of talents, or amounts of money. Two servants doubled the money they were given, but the third servant was afraid and buried his money. When the master of the servants returned, he commended the two servants who had multiplied their talents. The servant who had buried his talent made excuses and was rebuked by his master. There are several lessons we can learn from this parable. Perhaps one is to remember that sometimes, in our efforts to prevent the worst thing from happening, we make the best outcome less likely to happen. The servant who hid his talent was afraid, and acting on that fear led to a less effective outcome. Another lesson is that we need to use the resources God has given us to build up his kingdom. As with the parable of the ten virgins, the Lord refers to this parable in the Doctrine and Covenants. In section 60, he says, But with some I am not well pleased, for they will not open their mouths, but they hide the talent which I have given unto them, because of the fear of man. Woe unto such, for mine anger is kindled against them. And it shall come to pass, if they are not more faithful unto me, it shall be taken away even that which they have. The Lord is not happy when we hide our talents. In this context, he's referring to that as not opening our mouths to share the gospel. All of us have been given some degree of testimony. Will we open our mouths and share what we have? That's an important part of preparing for the second coming. The third parable in Matthew 25 is the parable of the sheep and the goats. Let me read this parable. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. 
Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left hand, You that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. If we were to summarize this parable in a sentence, we could say that whatever we do or don't do to those on the margins, the least of these, we do or don't do those things to Christ. Consider this question. When is the most recent time in your life where you can see yourself living this parable? When you did something to one of the least of these and you felt, I'm doing this for Jesus Christ. Perhaps for some of us, it was this morning. Perhaps others of us can't remember such a time. If that's the case, we might want to make a plan to do so. Recently, I've been reflecting on Barbara Brown Taylor's comment on this parable. She pointed out, the goats are not condemned for doing bad things, but for doing nothing. They bore the hungry, the thirsty, and the stranger no malice. They simply did not see any relationship between their lives and the lives of the least. There is a relationship, and it is up to each one of us to decide what we will do or will not do about it. In the modern day, Jesus Christ has taught, Thou wilt remember the poor and consecrate of thy properties for their support. And inasmuch as ye will impart of your substance unto the poor, ye will do it unto me. For inasmuch as ye do it unto the least of these, ye do it unto me. Hearing the Lord in the modern day echo each of these parables from Matthew 25 reminds me of their relevance to me right now. What could we do to apply these parables about the second coming? Consider these words from President Dallin H. Oaks. What if the day of his coming was tomorrow? If we knew that we would meet the Lord tomorrow, through our premature death or through his unexpected coming, what would we do today? What confessions would we make? What practices would we discontinue? What accounts would we settle? What forgivenesses would we extend? What testimonies would we bear? If we would do those things then, why not now? When we talk about the second coming, we sometimes focus on big battles that will take place before the Savior returns. It's true that there will be serious wars. Jesus taught that as the second coming approaches, there shall be heard of wars and rumors of wars, and the whole earth shall be in commotion, and men's hearts shall fail them, and they shall say that Christ delayeth his coming until the end of the earth. Growing up, I heard about an epic battle called the Battle of Armageddon that would take place just before the Second Coming. It was only later that I learned that the phrase Battle of Armageddon is actually not a scriptural phrase. In fact, the word Armageddon only appears one time in scripture. Revelation 16.16 says, He gathered them together into a place called, in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. 
This word Armageddon comes from the Hebrew phase Har Megiddo, or the hill or mountain of Megiddo. Megiddo was the scene of many Old Testament wars. Old Testament leaders such as Joshua, Deborah, and Josiah fought major battles in this area. To the first century recipients of the book of Revelation, Megiddo might sound something like Pearl Harbor does today, a site associated with war. Prophecies about final battles taking place before the Savior's return are scattered throughout Scripture, and it's hard to know exactly what will take place. It can be interesting to imagine what the end-of-days battles might look like, but I also think it's important to remember that we only have a few verses on the warfare that will take place prior to Christ's return, and they can be rather cryptic. Rather than focusing on which countries will be involved in end-time battles, I want to emphasize a consistent scriptural theme. Jesus wins. Zechariah chapter 14 speaks of all the nations of the earth coming to attack Jerusalem. Just after this description, we read, Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle, and his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. Jesus wins. As another example, Ezekiel 38 and 39 recounts fearsome battles between Israel and other nations. How will these battles conclude? The Lord says to those who oppose Israel, I will smite thy bow out of thy left hand and will cause thine arrows to fall out of thy right hand. I will give thee unto the ravenous birds of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. So will I make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel. Jesus wins. The book of Revelation describes battles in ways that are difficult to translate into modern times, but what I love most is how the battle ends. John portrays the final battle as easily being won by the Savior. We read, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Note that Christ's clothing is dipped in blood before the battle begins. Perhaps this suggests that he has already been fighting for us even before the battle. It may also remind us that Jesus is the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. Continuing in Revelation chapter 19, we read, And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As in our previous class, we see the Savior with the sword. Did you notice how in this battle, the only weapon mentioned is the sharp sword coming out of Christ's mouth? One way we can look at this passage is that the word of Christ will win in the final conflict. The enemy has wild beasts, dragons, locusts, and a host of other weapons, but Christ's word is victorious. Jesus rules with a rod of iron, which, if we connect to 1 Nephi chapter 11, also represents the word of God. John is quite brief in his description of how the battle turns out. He writes, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and then that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth. In other words, Jesus wins. Something striking about this account is that there's no actual battle. John introduces Armageddon in chapter 16, and he spends a lot of time describing how powerful the beast and the dragon are. 
but ultimately they are all talk and no walk. Satan has no power and evil poses zero threat. Once Jesus shows up, it's over. There have been some terrible battles in the previous centuries, and even worse warfare may lie in our future. But ultimately, the evil forces in the world will be conquered by Christ. No matter how bad things get, we can have peace when we remember that Jesus has won, is winning, and will win. What happens after the second coming? John the Revelator gives us one picture. He says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. What a beautiful place to live. John provides a series of details about the New Jerusalem that might not seem meaningful to us today, but would have been especially impressive to his first-century listeners. Remember that Revelation was originally written to a first-century audience. At that time, small towns like Capernaum or Nazareth did not have walls around them. They were too costly to build. In contrast, the greatest cities of the world had massive city walls. Ephesus, one of the cities to whom Revelation is directed, had walls around the city that were 5.5 miles in length. The mighty city of Rome had walls that were 7 miles in length and as high as 33 feet in some places. Pretty impressive. But John tells us that the walls around the New Jerusalem are 6,000 miles in perimeter and 1,500 miles in height. In other words, they completely dwarf anything that the people at that time could have imagined. Another interesting note about these walls. When Ezekiel had a vision of Jerusalem in the end times, he described a city with walls about 1.5 miles on each side. What John sees is nearly 1,000 times bigger than what Ezekiel foretold, perhaps symbolically indicating that God will not only fulfill his promises, he will more than do so. Small villages had dirt roads. Rome brought stone roads, but in the New Jerusalem, the street of the city was pure gold. Small villages had no running water. Rome brought water into the cities via aqueducts. But in the New Jerusalem, there's no need for aqueducts because a fountain of living water flows freely. Roman cities and even Jerusalem before it was destroyed would have one or more temples as a dwelling place for a deity. But speaking of the New Jerusalem, John says, I saw no temple therein. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. In other words, the temple had been the place for God and the people to meet, but in the New Jerusalem, the temple's not needed because Jesus Christ lives there among his people. This city sounds incredible. What will it take to enter? Will there be a security checkpoint? Do I need to bring my passport? No passport is required. But although the gate is wide open, not everyone can enter. John tells us, The gates of the New Jerusalem shall not be shut, and there shall no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. The gates aren't closed to keep people out. They're wide open, inviting followers of Christ to enter. We read that those who do Christ's commandments have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. You and I know that the book of Revelation was not the last book of the Bible to be written, but for a moment, let's consider the Bible as we have it. The second chapter of the Bible 
speaks of the tree of life, and because of the fall, Adam and Eve could not partake of it. But here in the Bible's final chapter, we learn that in the midst of the street of the New Jerusalem was the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The thing that was once forbidden and inaccessible to humans is now completely available, and it's available through Jesus Christ. This shows how the consequences of the fall are reversed through our Redeemer. Humans, once blocked from the tree of life, can now return and partake of its fruit. The New Jerusalem is going to be a beautiful place, and you and I can live there one day because of Jesus Christ. As we end this class, I hope you've learned a few things. I hope you feel a greater desire to treasure up Christ's word to avoid being deceived. I hope you have some ideas of how you can apply Christ's parables of preparation. And most of all, I hope you're not scared of the second coming, but that you're excited about it. Jesus Christ lives, and he's coming back. We don't know when, but as we prepare for that blessed future day, we can see glimpses of our future joys today, right here, right now. Thank you for listening today. We hope that you'll rate this podcast and leave a review. It makes a difference. This course is more than a podcast. There are several additional elements, including readings, PowerPoints, and other learning resources. These are all freely available at johnhiltoniii.com slash seekingjesus. We hope to see you there.